So when Danny and I talked about speaking this spring, uh, he kind of left it up to me. So I thought we might, I know Pastor David spoke to you about the Reformation, but I do want to go back and chew on it one more time. I think there's maybe some more things there that could be very valuable to us, I hope. Uh, at any rate, forgive me for turning around once in a while, but I do want to address what the issues, what were and are the issues. Uh, what does it matter? Is it over? And what is our response? Okay, we're all familiar with the solas. Uh, I don't think that's a new thing. And yet at the same time, when we talk about the solas by grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone, uh, as revealed in Scripture alone, for God's glory alone, I think there's a lot more going on there than we might see uh, at face value. When we start missing with the terms, uh, I think Samson hit it really well. This is off the Reformation Theology uh, website. He makes his point in the 16th century, the Roman Catholic Church believed and still does today that justification is by grace through faith because of Christ. What Rome does not believe is that justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. According to Rome, justification is by grace plus merit, through faith plus works, because of Christ plus the sinner's contribution of inherent righteousness. If we go back to 1547 to the Council of Trent, I think this, this is when the terms that seem to be kind of blurred become a lot clearer. This is the Catholic position on works. Under chapter 16 of justification, for since Christ Jesus himself as the head into the members and the vine into the branches continually infuses strength into those justified, which strength always precedes, accompanies, and follows their good works, and without which they could not in any manner be pleasing or meritorious before God, we must believe that nothing further is wanting to those justified to present them, prevent them from being considered to have by those very works which they have done in God, fully satisfied the divine law according to the state of this life and to have truly merited eternal life to be obtained in its due time provided they depart this life in grace since Christ our Savior says. What do you find odd about that? We have a lot of very similar terms, but do you think you'll ever merit eternal life? If you do, I think we're, we need to dive a little bit deeper into this. So we see the similar terms we see by grace alone, through faith alone, uh, and Christ alone is revealed in Scripture alone to the glory of God alone. But the primary issue is alone. It is those issues alone. And I think, I think Pastor Dave talked a lot about this, and when you... Uh, when you define what it means to be saved and what your authority is, alone takes on a whole lot more significance. So even though we're using like terms, Scripture says very clearly, and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of our own uh, that comes from the law, but in that which comes through faith in Christ, a righteousness from God that depends on faith. The one you're probably most familiar with, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10, for it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is the gospel. It is a gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Lots of similar terms, lots of works, lots of different things. But if we think that we come before a holy God, we're going to see a lot more. We see that the issues as they're being spelled out as faith, as, as authority, but when we get to what our authority is, I think we're going to take a lot bigger look at who God is. When we know the nature of God, Luke, or Luke, I'm sorry, uh, 
Jeremiah 9.23 says, This is what the Lord says, Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom, or the strong man boast of his strength, or the rich man boast of his riches. But let whom who boasts boast about this, that he knows me, that I exercise kindness and justice, for in this I delight. Knowing God is ultimately the issue. If we know God, the same God that, that we can't even come before because of his appearance, that he is so holy, we can never get that. If we think that we can earn our salvation with him, we don't understand his, his righteousness. Turn with me really quick. Grab your Bibles to uh, Romans. Let's go to Romans 9. Paul makes this point to, to, his, to the nation, starting in 930. And notice how his affections are for his brothers in chapter 10, but we'll start in 930. He said, what shall we say then? The Gentiles who do not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that will lead to righteousness did not succeed in, in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. He's getting to his point here. Bear with him. Brothers, my heart desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. They did not know God. They sought something they could do here. Some, as Isaiah would say, you're filthy. Your works are as filthy rags. They thought something they could do here, this side of eternity, would merit them favor with the holy God. And it will not merit them favor. Huge words. So knowing God is the issue. I think Justin Holcomb in his book, Knowing the Heretics, has anybody read that book? If you get a chance, jump into it. He's got a lot of really good points. I think one of the things that very much so pertains to what we're talking about today, he makes two points. While there's certainly ambiguity in the Bible, the creator of the world has decided to reveal himself to us and even to live with us. It is important to honor that revelation when we find this revelation distasteful and try to reshape God according to our preferences we are beginning to drift away from God as he really is. Number two, and when we have a flawed image of God, we no longer relate to him in the same way. Knowing God, knowing his character, knowing his holiness makes us understand when scripture says, without holiness, no one will see God. Holiness is something that we need to keep gazing at to have a right relationship with God. And our works will not get him any closer to that. The works that he said back in Ephesians 2.10, that he prepared in advance that we would walk in them, that's not earning salvation. So what are the issues? Uh, the authority, ultimately, knowing God, knowing God's word. And I understand this. I mean, these two scriptures right here, all scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And 2 Peter 1.21, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Your view of God's word is exactly proportional to your view of God. If you have a high view of God's word, you're going to see your sin for what it is. If you have a low view of God's word, number one, you're not going to be in the word because it doesn't matter. But if you want to see God as he is, this word that has so many characteristics to it. Uh, yeah, and we'll jump to this in just a second. But Paul said to the Philippians in 2.14, uh, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world holding fast to the word of God. 
This word is everything to us. I mean, this is just a list of things that God's word impacts us. Uh, one of the things that really jumps out to me, if you turn with me really quick to, uh, let's go to Luke 6. Luke 6, 46. I'm sure most are familiar with this passage, but notice what he comes along with after he makes this. Uh, he says, Luke 6, 46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my word and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood rose, notice not if a flood rose, when the flood rose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. Notice the parallel passage in Matthew 7 when he talks about in 721, when he's building into the same uh, parable of the house on the rock, he said, many will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we cast out demons? Didn't we prophesy in your name? And he'll say, away from me, I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. Digging down deep and planting your house on the foundation, that prevents us from heretical ideas, from heretical no notions that draw us away from the living God. Having your foundation secure in God's word, knowing God's word is knowing God. So when we view it that way, uh, that gives us a, a firm foundation as we can live life. Assurance is the issue. Uh, does it matter? My goodness, it matters. It matters so much, not only that you know God, not only that you're saved, but in that you have assurance. Uh, I really appreciate the gentleman that spoke earlier in regard to the, the Catholic view of this, that he appealed to God's mercy. I appeal to God's mercy every day. At the end of the day, that mercy was satisfied on the cross. I received Christ's righteousness based on faith and faith alone. God's mercy is amazing. And yet at the same time, he satisfied that on the cross. That makes, uh, makes all the difference in the world because I have that assurance. Uh, for you, well, 1 John 5, 13, I write these things. You believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know you have eternal life. John wrote that epistle to confirm in his beloved that they were saved. Yes, he wrote it to refute the Gnostics. I would never minimize that. Yet his stance was uh, he was convincing through seven unnegotiable traits that he, they were saved as a result. This, this assurance was a result of these affirmations in their life because they were saved. I think another passage that really gets to this, it's even for you Greek scholars out there, that's even a little more technical. Uh, Hebrews 3.14, and I think the NASB gets it closer with the assurance as opposed to confidence. Uh, for we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of, us, beginning of our assurance firm until the end. That firm until the end, it seems like it's negotiable. It's maybe out there and it's in question. If you look at the Greek language, it's not in question. And the reason is, is for you Greek guys, uh, the assurance is gigonomen, which is a perfect, which means it's translated as a past tense, but it has ongoing results. Okay, it's not like, uh, like a on this next slide, it's not like uh, the point is you've become born of God, Anathan, literally born from above, eternally secure if you hold fast. The point is you have become perfect tense, not you will become. You have become as being realized as you see that assurance manifest in your life and your trust in God grows. Why? Because you know God. You know that he is the one that you, we could just do a, a real survey of scripture. You could go to Philippians 1.6. He that began a good work is what? Faithful and just to complete it. Hebrews 12, 2, the author and the perfecter. Jude 24, I mean, you can do this all day long. If I'm counting on me to finish my salvation, it ain't going to happen. I don't care how disciplined I am. 
it will not come to pass. If I'm counting on the one that has the pay grade and the ability, that is salvation. Anything less than that is damning. There's a couple of things to talk about as far as it being over. It's certainly not over. And not just not over between Catholicism and Protestantism or however you want to look at Seventh-day Adventists, just go down the line, Mormonism, whatever. That's not over. I'm more concerned about the stuff that is in here that we need to deal with because we can reject that from a distance and give it some arms, length, shrug, and, and keep it away. The ones that I'm concerned about, Paul told Timothy in, in four, 2 Timothy 4, 1-5, he says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge, the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort when, with complete patience and teaching, for the time will come when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will, not turn, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. And not to outdo it, but in 2 Timothy chapter 3, he kind of explains what the issue is manifest in real time. He says, but understand this, that in the last days there will be times of difficulty where people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of money, having an appearance of godliness but denying such power. Avoid such people. What does he mean by avoid such people? Or why does it, what does he mean by denying the power first? How, how are they denying the power? Any ideas? Nothing changes. John 3 explains being born of the Spirit, kind of like the wind. You don't see where it comes from or where it goes to, but you see the effect. That's what it means to be born again. When you're born again, there's a difference. The power is not denied. God's word speaks into our heart, speaks into our life, and things change. It's an everyday, all-day kind of thing. Does that make sense? This is tough to go between glasses. I'm kind of going like this. Regardless, so it still does matter. Uh, right now, we struggle with a different issue. I've been kind of wearing Blake's paper out here lately. He handed out at Minute Truth a couple weeks ago, this article. Uh, it's a Piper article. And, and he... And he has this lady come down to him after service, and he says this, uh, for example, and if any of you are familiar with Piper and how he writes it, when you get Piper, you kind of get where he's coming from, but he says, for many years I've been trying to figure out how God's pursuit of his glory relates to love for you and me. When I find, what I find gets clearer every year in recent months has gotten even clearer, for example. A woman came up to me after church weeping her eyes out in, in distress over the problems in her life. At one point in her conversation, I asked her, if you were in a place where you had your health, you had your family, you had all your favorite fruits, foods, you had your favorite recreation, and you didn't have to feel guilty, would you still want to be there if Jesus wasn't there? She cried out, yes. He said, that's where a lot of professing Christians are. The gifts of Christ are what they feel good about, not Christ. Forgiveness feels good. Getting rid of guilt feels good. Staying out of hell feels good. Having a marriage work feels good. Having the kids stay off drugs feels good. And having a body made well feels good. Frankly, Jesus can take a vacation. Just give me these things. The point is, how does this tie to the Reformation? This is what we're wrestling with today. We're wrestling with this time that, that Paul told Timothy was coming. This, 
times of great distress, times of perilous times. Why? Because we're lovers of self rather than lovers of God. As lovers of God, we see a difference in our life. We see the Spirit work in our life as we address everything, as we address business, as we address life, as we address marriage, as we address everything as the believer addresses. If we put the litmus test at God's gift and how much he's given us, we've missed the point. Because usually in the midst of adversity is when I know he gets my best attention. And maybe you're different, but I don't think so. And so we want to make sure we're addressing it from his point of view. And when his gift is suffering, which... Uh, I think it's Timothy said, you know, all who desire to live a godly life will suffer persecution. That's what we signed on for. And he's usually going to carry us in the midst of that adversity, in the midst of that suffering. And we come out the other side knowing him better, loving him more. If we're just waiting for his gifts, then we're probably not waiting for him. That's no less a damning gospel than the one that says you can earn it. Make sense? John, 1 John 1, 6 says, If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. If we have a gospel that's not with Jesus Christ as the center of it, with us making much of him at the center of it, we don't have the gospel. That's not the gospel. You might say Jesus. You might use similar terms, but you don't have that gospel. The gospel that says, and uh, I think this is next, no, but in your hearts, honor Christ as the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense for anybody who asks you for the reason for the hope that is within you, yet do it with gentleness. Can we give that answer? He makes the point, and I evidently went through it in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 14, that he says, for the love of Christ compels us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. Therefore he who died that those who live for him might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for their sake and was raised. When we came to the cross, it ceased to be about us. If we have a self-centered gospel, it's not the gospel. And when you walk out the doors, you will be in the midst of that. You need to be able to give an answer for the hope that lies within you. And that hope is not him making much of me. That hope is me making much of him. And usually in the midst of adversity, that's what we signed on for. Any questions about any of that? I have no idea what time we have left because I can't see the wall. But Okay, any questions about any of that? Does that seem convoluted? Does that seem not a really clear gospel? Am I the only one that wrestles with that? I don't think so. I know enough of you well enough to know that you do. The point is you need to be prepared. When we look at all those issues of the word, uh, his word is our everything. It's not only Matthew 4, our daily sustenance. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That is literally true. We respond to everything in kind with his word. His word is a lamp into our feet and a light into our path. It gives me direction, never leaves me without hope. Never leaves me in a position that I can't respond well to honor him. Does that mean I do that all the time? Maybe not, but I hope so. Yep. Would you say then that the Reformation is continuing on today? Oh, amen. Because the thing is, the names and the faces have changed, but the game's the same. I mean, we either respond by being... Because it's like this, morality. Somehow we... We trump uh, truth with sincerity, 
And yet you still die dead in your sins and go to hell because truth will not be trumped by sincerity. So that whole idea of the fact that I can come away with something other than a solid foundation in God's word and still be okay, because I'm pretty moral. I'm a nice guy. So why wouldn't God save me? I think that's the point. That, that doesn't save us. You can be more moral, and that means nothing to a holy God. You're either saved by faith through grace alone, or you're not saved. You can be as moral as you want to, and that doesn't mean anything on Judgment Day. Yeah? How do you um, lead in a ministry position and in, in lead in a way that you are showing that salvation is uh, by grace alone without getting to a hyper-grace standpoint? Number one, a total transparency. I mean, because for this idea to think, well, it's not hot in my house. I mean, it's like, no. Last time I checked, First John 1, 8 says, everybody who claims to be without sin is a liar and the truth is not in him. So to be hyper in the midst of that would lack any humility that I think Scripture commands. That's not really negotiable for me. And yet at the same time, I can take a strong conviction on sin and being with sin, never agreeing with sin. Does that make sense? I can still be ultra-critical of sin, which I need to be. To have a Holy Spirit that resides within me, that Ephesians 1.13 says that it's my deposit guarantee my inheritance, and me be okay with sin, the very sin that Christ died for, is an oxymoron. The Spirit is not going to agree with that. And so, yes, we find ourselves as sinners, and we want to be critical of sin, but we want to be found in a repentant state where we're always coming to the Father in repentance and humility. And yes, we're critical of sin, and that does not create a hyper-mentality. It's like a Wesleyan perfectionism of sorts. So does that make sense? Does that answer your question? Okay. Anything else? It happens when you go out the door. That's when reality shows up. Life happens, and you get married, and you get kids, and these distractions of the world seem to kind of draw you off. That's when, this is kind of like a CrossFit thing, a transfer over. You need form the minute the weight's too much or you're too tired. That's when you need the most form because that's when you're going to get hurt. And so the same thing is like when life kicks in and you have all these deadlines and all these things and Bill's doing, my goodness, 3.2 kids and a white picket fence, it's all there. If you're not resisting it, if you're not being, building that foundation on that solid word, you're running the risk. You're running the risk of believing lies. You're running the risk of being in a position to not bring glory to God. Because even in the midst of your failures, you can still bring glory to God. That's why we repent. I mean, that's that mindset of humility. It's like, wow, Father, forgive me. Anything else? Don't make me call on you. That's all I got for today. Unless you've got any questions. Sure. One more time, I'm sorry. Well, we just came to the argument that Catholic and Protestant disagreement is more semantics, where we just say that like, you're saved by grace, but we also would agree that you're not doing works of grace. You're not really saved. And as you said, the Spirit of God is not in you. You don't agree with those things. So they just say that those things have to be to prove that, but they're also required. Do you see how it can be seen? Right. I say, well, number one, if you're counting on those works for salvation, you're confused. 
I mean, I think that's part of the issue because it's like this. I draw, put up on the wall, I draw a big circle. We know all those verses that say, nobody comes to this, John 6, 44, nobody comes to the Son except that God the Father call him. We know Jesus answered on the way, the truth, and life. Nobody comes to the Father. I mean, this whole issue of being a Christian in this circle is very exclusive. Outside of that circle, nobody knows if they're saved. And the reason they don't know if they're saved is they don't know if they've done enough today. They need to have, give Jesus a hand because what he did on the cross was not satisfactory. So when we talk about works, they're an evidence of the faith that saved me. And if those works don't show up, James would beg to differ. I'm not convinced if any man says, and he says that doesn't mean anything. What you do is a result of that faith that exists. But if you're counting on those works to save you, you're confused. And that's totally undermining Christ's total propitiatory fulfillment on the cross that God planned before the foundations of the earth. So works have to be there, and yet at the same time, works never save me. Make sense? Okay. And it's important that we understand that rightly, because, and again, and this comes back to knowing God. If we're knowing God, then we're knowing that uh, this mindset, like in, in uh, I think Jeremiah 9, like I said, we know him. He exercises kindness and justice. We're in this ideal light. His mercy is amazing to me. That's what he sent his son for. He knew we couldn't do it. That's why we receive it by faith. If I could do it, then like those guys in Romans 9 and 10, never reached it. Why? Because they didn't understand the holiness of God. My works aren't going to muster that. Cool? Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the day. We thank you for the clarity of your word. We thank you for the way that it uh, is that firm foundation that it is always there and it is always accurate and it is always to the point and most importantly it's your word when you tell us that your mercies are new every morning that the breath we take is the breath you give it causes us to love you more and to honor you more and to desire to even be the son more and more that you've called us the daughter more and more that you've called us to be so help us to honor you father help us to honor you in the midst of everything uh, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, in the midst of, of great difficulty, full of distractions, help us to see with clarity. Help us to look to your word daily and help us to be transformed daily by the renewing of our minds. In Christ's name.